When Melinda was five, she'd be getting ready for church. She'd be putting on her fancy shoes, her Mary Janes, and she'd get an idea. And so I'd just say to myself, okay, things will go well today if I wear my buckles behind my ankles instead of like how you're normally supposed to wear them, which is like over the foot. So I would sling them back and say, okay, now my day will go good. But what if it doesn't go good all because I changed the way I put my shoes on? So I should probably take them back off, change them back to how they're supposed to be, and put them back on again. As a kid, Melinda figured everybody thought this way, that we were all controlling our destinies through things like the positions of our shoe buckles. She now knows that the shoe buckle thing was just her way of coping with anxiety. Anxiety is something we hear about a lot when it comes to moms. Postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression. But lots of people, like Melinda, have anxiety, kid or no kid. Add sleepless nights and a tiny beating heart to the mix, and the worrying and obsessing just gets even more intense. And that stuff can be really hard and embarrassing to talk about. Melinda sees a therapist now and has friends she can confide in. But before she had kids, she kept her anxiety completely secret, even from her husband. This is The Longest Shortest Time from WNYC. I'm Hillary Frank. Today on the show, Melinda tells the deeply personal story of her struggle with anxiety and how it's been especially hard as an African-American being afraid of what her culture would think of her if she admitted she had a mental health problem. Melinda has two children, Linnell, the baby, she's 10 months old, and Langston, who's four. Before Langston, Melinda had a miscarriage. She was, of course, devastated by the loss. After that, she got pregnant again pretty quickly, which she was happy about. But she was worried about another miscarriage, so she was afraid to really feel that happiness. She figured the best way to protect herself from the misery of that possibility was to tell herself she was going to lose the baby. That way, if everything went well, then great. If it didn't, she'd at least be prepared. She kept thinking this way, even when she got into her third trimester and everything seemed completely normal. Melinda was constantly looking for evidence that something would go wrong. One thing she would do, she'd count the baby's kicks. This is something your doctor tells you to do. They, they want you to feel 10 movements over two hours. Well, Melinda wanted to be extra sure the baby was moving enough, so she'd lie on her couch with a notebook and a pen. She put her hand on her belly. So I just feel his jerks and it'd be like one, mark it down, two, mark it down, three, four, mark it, mark it. And he would go crazy. I mean, within five minutes, there'd be like 70 kicks. All those kicks freaked Melinda out. Because I'm like, that's probably too many kicks. Like, I just had these awful images of him being tangled in his cord or trying to like get out. Things like that would just pop into my head. So Melinda started wishing the baby would slow down a little. And he did. He went from 70 kicks in five minutes to 60 kicks in five minutes. So that was my mark for he's not moving as much as he had been. But wait, but wait, you wanted him to be moving less because you thought it was too much. <laughs> right. Right. It's, it's one of those things when I think about it where it's like, there wasn't going to be a satisfactory result for me. And I'd pretty much count down the hours till I could go and check again. 
um, to make sure that in my mind, quote unquote, things were okay, but they never were. (laughs) Melinda became so convinced that she'd lose the baby that she went on Amazon and bought a heart Doppler. It's one of those wands doctors use on your belly with the gel to monitor the baby's heart rate. Towards the end of the pregnancy, I had mentioned to my doctor, um, you know, I just feel so worried all the time. And she said, well, worried about what? And I said, you know, if he's healthy, if everything is healthy, if everything is fine. And that was kind of my own little way of trying to tell her, look, I'm here. I need help. And she kind of just pushed it to the side and said, well, everybody worries. And and I felt too ashamed or too embarrassed to kind of go into it further and say, no, I don't think this is normal. Um, because I felt like I was literally drowning inside of myself. Melinda told her doctor she was concerned about the baby's kick count. And so when I told her that, she says to me, okay, well, we'll just send you down to the antepartum unit and you'll get a non-stress test. And that non-stress test is just them putting the probes on your stomach and they're looking at the baby's heart rate. They're measuring your uterine activity to see if there are any contractions. And then they are having you press a button every time you feel the kick. And so his kicks were back to normal, back to his normal, And I guess at that point I was having some type of contractions, but I just didn't know because it was my first pregnancy and I just assumed everything was a Braxton Hicks. And the doctor says, well, his heart rates keep going down when you have a contraction. And I don't like that, but you're not 38 weeks, so we're going to wait. She said, come back the next day. So I came back the next day and she says, yeah, it's the same thing. So she tells me, come back in two days. And of course... Each time that I left the non-stress test, I was even more stressed out. I was just a mess crying on the bus, just so scared that, okay, here's where it happens. Here's where I miss that something's going wrong and he dies and I have to give birth to a stillborn child. And so I, at the time, I also had hired a doula and I spoke with her and she was like, you don't have to go back there if you don't want to. You can, but you really don't have to. It really sounds like normal stuff, but I want you to look within yourself and make your own medical decisions. And so I said, oh, she's right. And I thought, I'm okay. Things are okay. And so that night I had this horrible dream where he was really kicking really furiously and he was trying to get out. And it was like the same kind of images that I had when I was counting the kicks or whatever, that that's why there's too many. So it was the same kind of dream. And I just woke up and in a sweat because it just felt like, okay, he's trying to get out. He's trying to tell me something. So I need to go. So, so we went to the hospital and it was the same thing where she says, you know, we don't like the way his heart rates look when you're having your contractions. So you're just going to be induced today right now. And I was like, holy crap, I don't feel prepared for that. And she looks me in the eyes and she goes, I'll just put it to you like this. You can leave and your baby could just die inside of you and it'll be your fault. Wow. So, yeah. Did she know that you had those kinds of fears? No, because it wasn't the same doctor. This Mm -hmm. was, this was a huge practice. And, um, 
And so, of course, when she said that, I was just like, now I'd be a really huge idiot to leave at this point because this has always been my fear. So I went on ahead and they started the induction process. They did the Cervidil, which is like on a little string. They put some type of medication that's supposed to soften the cervix. And then the doctor and the nurses told me I couldn't eat after that. And that that was a Sunday. They said I would probably have a baby by Tuesday night. Um, <laughs> and so I was, my husband's like, no, 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 that's just crazy. You're not going to eat until Tuesday night. You're not doing that. You are not doing that. How are you supposed to have energy? And they were like, well, she'll have energy through her IV. And so I guess we did our own little rebellious things. And, um, my mother-in-law brought in some chicken and rice and beans because they're Dominican and that's one of their staples. And the nurse comes in and goes, oh, that's so mean. They're eating in front of you. And I had a mouthful of food. And I said, mm-hmm, so mean. Turned out Melinda didn't have to wait until Tuesday night. Her son was born at 5.30 the next morning. There were no complications in the labor, no problems with the food she ate. I was a joyous, hot mess, crying all over the place. Um, just really happy. But then... You know, after you get home from the hospital, you're just kind of like, okay, now what? Um, the anxiety hit me right back again, where it turned into anxiety about, is he breathing in the crib? He slept in the same room with us. He slept in our bed eventually. And it was like, I'd wake up just to check to see that he was breathing because I was so afraid that he was just going to die in the middle of the night and I wouldn't know it. Melinda's notebook came out again. She took notes on baby Langston's sleeping patterns. She wrote down exactly how many minutes he breastfed on each side. She insisted on watching people wash their hands before she'd let them hold the baby and on knowing where all 10 of his pacifiers were at all times. She obsessed over the clothes in his closet. She'd organize them all by size. Yeah, and by color. <laughs> well, so boys are mostly like blues. Yeah. So it was like, is it a dark blue? Is it a light blue? Is it long sleeve? Is it short sleeve? Um, if there was like a sweater set and pants with it, it it'd still have to go behind. Even if it was in the same uh, size, it would all go behind so that I know it was a complete outfit and not just pants. Um, and my husband's like, when are you going to be normal again? And I was just like, that really hurt me um, because he's always been a very supportive person. And for him to say that, I was like, okay, he notices that I'm not myself or like I've even changed from who I was before um, with that anxiety. It's even worse. And neither one of us really knew what to do about it. We're going to take a little break. Coming up, Melinda finds a new way to worry by pretending really hard that she is not worrying at all. Don't go away. Hey, you guys, we've been asking you to subscribe to our show in iTunes and write us reviews. We told you that this would help us climb the charts, and we've got some great news. It's working. We made it into the top 100 in iTunes solidly for more than a week. We got up to number 15, this is huge for us. It has never happened before. And the longer we stay, the more people will be able to find our show. And the more listeners we have, the more resources we'll have to do cool things for you, like our Speed Dating for Mom Friends events coming up in New York and San Francisco. 
Go to LongestShortestTime.com to find out more about those. But for now, keep it up. If you haven't done this already, please go to iTunes right now. Find our show, click subscribe, and write us a review while you're there. And if you're looking for a new podcast to try, check out WNYC's On the Media with Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield. On the Media is just what it sounds like. It's a show about the media, but you don't need to be a media junkie to like it. The thing I love about Brooke and Bob and all of the reporters at OTM is they sound like real people and they make you care about all the stuff in the news that you might normally find really boring. You can find On the Media wherever you get your other podcasts or listen on the WNYC app. We're back. Melinda eventually calmed down a bit, settled into being a mom. She and her husband moved from New York to Georgia to be closer to family. Then, about three years after Langston was born, Melinda became pregnant with her second child, Linnell. This time, she was determined for things to be different. She told herself she would outsmart her anxiety. Instead of obsessing about the kit counts um, with my daughter, I did a lot of meditation. I did a lot of relaxation and breathing and focusing in that way um, and trying to connect to her. I would talk to her. With, with my son, I never talked to him um, at all when I was pregnant. So with her, I talked to her a lot. What did you um, say to her? I would just say, you know, I, I love you. I can't wait to meet you. I can't wait to hold you. I can't wait to give you kisses. Um, I can't wait to see who you look like. I can't wait to see who you are. And I would also say, you know, um, mommy's going to relax about this. But if there's ever any time that you're not feeling well, you just let me know. I don't know how you'll let me know, but just let me know. If you, if you need to come out, just let me know. 17 days before Melinda's due date, she started having contractions. She was out to brunch with some friends and had to stop eating her huge medium-well hamburger to breathe. But the new relaxed Melinda was not going to let this worry her. She went home, took a nap. When she woke up, she got her mind off the contractions by diving into a big project for her master's degree in communication sciences and disorders, so basically speech therapy. To prove how not anxious she was about these contractions, she made a point of not even timing them. Finally, around dinner time, she decided to see how far apart they were. And they were three minutes apart and like two minutes long. And I was like, I think this is not a good thing. I was like, I think I'm pretty far into labor. And my husband's like, so what do you want me to do? And I was like, well, just I'm just going to get in the shower and see if I can slow the contractions down. Wait, but getting in the shower is supposed to be the thing that like helps you get through I the labor. <laughs> this is Hillary. This is how in denial I wanted to be. I, I wanted things so badly to be different than what they were with my son. I didn't want anxiety to drive me. I didn't want to make anxious decisions. I wanted them to be, <laughs> I'm laughing because I wanted to say, I wanted them to be common sense decisions. <laughs> it sounds like you have a new, um, like <laughs> coping technique for, uh, for labor. <laughs> Just pretend it's not happening. <laughs> exactly. So you're in the shower. <laughs> so I get in the shower and I'm having my contractions and I'm just breathing through them. And I get out and my husband comes in and I tell him, I'm just, 
standing there naked, leaning over on the bed. And I'm like, okay, I think we need to go to the hospital. (laughs) And he says to me, you have to put clothes on to go to the hospital. (laughs) And I go, I think I can get my bra on. And he's like, that's not going to work. You can't just walk into the hospital with just a bra on. He says, here, put my bathrobe on. So I'm trying to put the bathrobe on. And I'm like, you know, I really don't think we're going to make it because I feel the baby coming and I feel like I have to push and I'm pushing and I'm pushing. And I said, I'm not going to make it. This isn't going to happen. He was like, but there's another hospital right behind us. We live literally um, in front of another hospital. It wasn't my hospital that I planned on delivering at, but it's a hospital that has a really great delivery ward or whatever. And I was like, I can't even make it there. It's not going to happen. And so he's like frantic and panicking. And I'm just kind of really calm about things. And I'm like, come hell or high water, this baby is coming and I don't really have a choice about it. Melinda's husband calls her doula who lives around the corner. The doula gets there, washes her hands in the nick of time and catches the baby. And it was so different from when my son came out because when my son came out, I was crying. I was so emotional. I was so ecstatic. Just waves of emotions came over me. And I feel almost horrible saying it, but with my daughter, I was still very just like, okay, she's here. Um, kind of unemotional about it. And it's not that I didn't care. I, I cared, but I just couldn't. It wasn't the same emotion when she came out. Um, part of it may have still been the coping mechanism for my anxiety where it was like, okay, we're just gonna, we're just gonna not admit that anything's happening. And if we admit that it's not happening, then it's not real. Um, um, and so why do you think it was so hard for you to like admit to yourself that you had mental health struggles? Um, I think that one of the things that was difficult to me or for me was culturally um, being from an African-American family. There's a lot of times where in, in our family in particular, where it's just like, it's only people with schizophrenia or people who are into drugs and things like that, that need help. Um, Like when I, had finally shared with my mom, even after my daughter was born, I said, you know, I really don't think I'm coping well with things. Like, I don't think that things are going so well with me. I said, I think that I am having problems with anxiety. Like, I feel sad all the time or anxious all the time or like I'm dropping the ball, like I'm not doing too well. And she looks at me and says, well, you really don't have time for that. Um, you really don't have time for anxiety or seeing anyone. So, and she just kind of shrugged her shoulders. Um, and you were saying you think that that's, a, that's typical of? Of African-Americans families. Yeah. Of I think that there's just a stigma attached to seeking mental health care. There's, well, first of all, um, try finding someone who accepts insurance. So there's a socioeconomic barrier in a lot of cases to it. Um, But then on top of that, it's 
thinking that only quote unquote crazy people need it. And so people who have schizophrenia or people who have um, severe depression. And some of it was me putting it on myself because I spent a lot of time growing up in a predominantly white community and having to portray that I'm really strong, I'm really smart, I'm really well put together. And strength includes not letting the emotions get the better of you. Melinda uses the term that a lot of people use for this, being a model minority. Being a model minority is being the anti-stereotype, this the person that you don't think of when you think of a minority. Um, you know, there, there was this episode of Scandal that I recently started watching, but there was an episode on a show where the person says, um, you have to be twice as good to get half of what they have. And so I grew up with my parents telling me that, um, like, you have to work twice as hard. You have, you can't just be good. You have to be better than good. And that's even to just get some type of recognition. So to say that I had a mental health disorder or to say that I had issues with anxiety was admitting that or in my mind, it was admitting that I'm not as good. In order to keep up her model minority status, Melinda kept her anxious thoughts to herself. Till one day when she was on Facebook, she saw this woman, the mom of one of her son's classmates, talking openly about her own postpartum anxiety. Turned out the woman was in a support group and Melinda decided to check it out. Some of the women in the group were seeing therapists and Melinda thought if they were brave enough to do that, then maybe she was too. I think one of the biggest things that I've learned was that it's okay to feel. Um, sorry. So much of what I've tried to do is push it to the side and tell myself I shouldn't feel like that or I can't feel like that. Um, and just recognizing that, that felt like such a huge weight off of my shoulders. And just to have someone say, it's okay to feel. So you you talked a lot about um, being obsessed with um, thoughts of death when you were pregnant and, and postpartum. And um, I have an almost five-year-old. You have a four-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've found this, but I've found that my daughter is going through a pretty long death obsession period. Yes. She, she is really the main thing she wants to talk about all the time. So like, um, I just wonder, like, does your kid talk about death a lot? Yeah, he does. Um, he does. And it's one of the things that we're going to start working on in therapy because I, I am wanting to pass on a healthier thought process to him. Um, I feel like, when I was a kid as well, I would obsess about death. So I, there was a time when I was really small where I remember laying down in my closet and just crying and crying and crying. And my sister comes into the closet and is like, what's wrong? And I like, I don't want to die. And she's like, well, that doesn't have to happen for a really long time. Um, and I, like a few weeks ago, my son said the same thing. He's like crying in the car. Mommy, I don't ever want to die. I don't want to be human anymore because I, I don't want to die. And it's like, 
I haven't really quite found the words on how to talk to him about it or how to explain it to him because I have my own hangups about it. And I just don't even know what to say. My husband just looks at him and says, be quiet. Hmm. Mainly because he knows that that's a source of anxiety for me. So it's his way, I guess, of trying to keep me from spinning into having negative feelings or starting to feel heightened anxiety about it. And at the same time, I feel like that's a really selfish way to do things. Like I have to try to help him process. I feel like it's my responsibility as his parent. Still, Melinda says she kind of can't help putting the pressure on her kids that was put on her to be a model minority, especially with her son. For example, I find my, and maybe this part is a speech therapist in me, um, where I'm like, how do you pronounce that word? I want you to pronounce it this way and making him practice saying it. Like what words? So one of the hardest sounds in the English language is the TH sound or the TH sound. Um, He's four, so it's perfectly normal for him not to have that sound, but he replaces it with an F at times. Um, And that's that's part of dialect as well. That's part of African-American dialect. So he'll say with, with an F at the end instead of with. And so I make him practice and practice and practice saying it. Um, Because sadly enough, we're judged on how we talk. We are judged on how we use our language. And that being what I know to be part of dialect, part of associated with African-American dialect, it's like, okay, we're going to have to not have him do that. Like he has to learn it another way. He has to learn how to say the TH okay properly. Does that feel like another version of it's not okay for you to show that you're having anxiety? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It feels like me like obsessing over that or putting more pressure onto him and passing that anxiety onto him. And at the same time, I'm like, how else can I raise a black man? I guess to continue having him being seen as human, I have said to people in the past that one of the most difficult things for me is when people say, oh, he's so cute. He Look at how cute he is. Um, and I think, I think maybe some, a lot of people feel so happy when people say that, but it, it sends me into anxiety where I'm like, great, they see him as cute now, but what will they see him as if I don't try to push these things on him? Um, but one of the things that I've started trying to be more conscious and aware of is allowing my son to speak about his feelings. My daughter can't speak yet, so she, she can't speak on her feelings except to cry or laugh. But, um, you know, just he's a lot better at it than I was at his age, which is to say, you know, I feel really sad that you said that to me, or I feel really angry that you talk to me like that. I mean, he says those things. So I think that's at least a better start um, than what I was given. Because when I was younger, it was, you're too young to feel this way, or you're too young to be upset, or I'll give you something to be upset about. So, you know, the with a lot of the way that we raise him to speak about his feelings, like he has cousins that laugh at him about it um or they're like oh he's such a punk um and I'm like so because he says he's sad that makes him a punk like because he has an emotion 
that makes him less strong in your eyes. So when I say that to them, they just kind of look like, oh, I didn't think about it like that. But I'm like, you know, essentially that's what you're saying to him. Even without saying it's not okay, that's exactly the value you're placing on it for him. Melinda says she's much more relaxed than she used to be. And not just fake relaxed like she was when she was pregnant with Linnell. She still gets obsessive thoughts. Like she'll get out of the shower and think, maybe I'll have a better day if I hang the towel on the curtain rod, not the back of the door. But now, instead of actually moving the towel, she'll look at the curtain rod, then back of the door, then back at the curtain rod. She'll take a deep breath and she'll walk away. If you really thought your life was controlled by a towel, then, <laughs> then you would have figured it out by now and everything would be peachy keen. But as it goes, days are variable, life is variable, and it's not going to be controlled by a towel. <laughs> Thanks to Melinda for having the guts to tell this story. I know that a lot of you can relate to her. And if you've struggled with anxiety, in parenthood or not, we want you to think of our website as a safe place to talk about it, to talk to each other about this thing that is so common but is so often kept secret. Talk about what your anxiety looks like, how you manage it. If you haven't gotten help, why not? Do you come from a culture or a family where you'd be embarrassed to admit that you have anxiety? Leave your comment at longestshortesttime.com in the post for this episode. That's episode 53. This podcast is a production of The Longest Shortest Time and WNYC. The show is produced by me, Hilary Frank, and Joanna Solitaroff. Bill Moss mixed the show. Our theme music is by The Batteries Duo. Special thanks to Peter Clowney and Alex Kappelman. I'll be back with a new episode in two weeks at 3 o'clock in the morning. That one's got hot romance, a role reversal, resentment, and lots and lots of donuts. Don't want to wait until 3 a.m. to hear that? You don't have to. Just subscribe to our newsletter. Go to our website, enter your email in the little box, and I'll send you a secret link six hours earlier than the show gets posted. Don't forget to listen to WNYC's On the Media. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or listen on the WNYC app. And as always, if you have a story that you'd like me to consider for this podcast, go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. Your story.